0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi everyone, welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Diseases. This is lecture number 18, Evolution of SARS-CoV-2. I'm giving this lecture in a very difficult time for the university, a very difficult time for our nation, and a very difficult time for the world. And this is on SARS-CoV-2 evolution. So we've talked a lot about SARS-CoV-2 over the course, um, and now this is the capstone. Most of what we know about how SARS-CoV-2 is evolving. Okay, so there is no temperature check today because this entire lecture is on SARS-CoV-2. Okay, Now, this is less about evolution, but just characterizing SARS-CoV-2. This is a pretty old figure from the beginning of the pandemic that I didn't share with you guys before because we hadn't learned about the variables R0 and virulence yet. Now that we have learned about them, I wanted to share this lecture, or I wanted to share this figure um, in order to help you get some perspective on the characteristics of SARS-CoV-2, and the, and the strain that's causing such a crazy pandemic, in um, the characteristics of other well-known viruses. And so uh, the reason why I pointed out that this was an older figure is that at the time, we had pretty poor estimates for uh, the virulence and the R-naught of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and now we have much better estimates. So originally, the figure just showed that SARS-CoV-2, or at the time they were calling it still the new coronavirus, would fall somewhere within this region, but they didn't know where. And now I think we can say much much more able to say that it's probably here where it has a virulence of about 1% or maybe slightly under 1% mortality rate. And that it has an R-naught, you know, somewhere around three. Now this is an R-naught for a population that has lots of susceptible people um, and is not socially distancing. And so we can change our behaviors in order to move this, its ability to spread uh, down in this graph. Um, And so, and we have done that in a combination of the changing season and also our changing behavior. We've seen that uh, we have a sort of plateau in the spread of SARS-CoV-2. And so that means it's probably like an R-naught of about, about one right now in the United States. So it'll keep spreading, but it won't grow exponentially and spread out of control. Okay, here's where SARS-CoV-2 is. Um, other things to look at. I found this extremely shocking. Measles has, you know, relatively high death rate. Not as high as SARS-CoV-2, but its infectivity or its or its ability to spread, its R-naught is 15. It's extraordinarily high. And so, thank God that we have vaccines to measles because that's a that's a that's that's a nightmare. Things like Ebola, uh, you know, these are recent a- epidemics. Uh, Ebola has a really high virulence. Uh, and remember, this is a, a log axis here. And so the difference between here and here is enormous. So it has a really high virulence. And so that really limits its ability to spread and why we have epidemics, but they never turn into these global pandemics. We can look at uh, seasonal flu. You know, we know that some people do die from seasonal flu, but it's 10 times less than SARS-CoV-2, and it's not nearly as infectious as SARS-CoV-2. So that's that's pretty interesting. Why SARS-CoV-2 is such a, a bigger problem for us? Uh, you have the 2009 flu. So this is an epidemic that started in North America, the swine flu. But we don't really talk about it too much because yes, it made a lot of people sick, but it didn't have even as high of a rate of mortality as as seasonal flu. Uh, Here's common cold. It's a little bit more infectious than the 2009 flu, but about the same in the level of fatality that it causes. So yeah, so this is sort of for your own learning. Uh, You can sort of see where different viruses are. MERS and SARS are much more deadly than SARS-CoV-2. And bird flu is something that we talked a lot about in this class. On the gain of function mutations. I always thought that the next pandemic that humans would experience uh, would be caused by the bird flu, getting those gain of function mutations and then spreading in human populations. But that is uh, not what we see. And very happy about, well, I'm not happy about any pandemic, but I'm happy that the bird flu has not become a pandemic uh, causing strain yet because you see it has an incredibly high mortality rate. So that, that would be even worse than what we're going through right now. Okay, so now we're going to talk about evolution. And so we have to remember qualities of the genome of the virus. Uh, this is a review from earlier lectures. Uh, this is just to help you be able to picture what's going on with the evolution of this genome. And so here are, here's a genomic structure of different coronaviruses, SARS-CoV and MERS-CoV. The SARS-CoV-2 has the same genomic structure. And what we have are these big open reading frames, these are big genes that get chopped up into smaller proteins that do all kinds of functions. This is the S, we're going to focus on the S a lot. This is the host recognition protein. Um, And then here's a bunch of other proteins, the end of the genome. Remember that this is an RNA genome, and so it has a higher rate of mutation than DNA genomes. It is a relatively large RNA genome, so 30 kb, um, 30,000 bases and it is replicated from going from one RNA strand, creating an antisense RNA strand, and then from that, creating a new copy of the genome from that antisense strand. So in that process, it accumulates mutations. Here's a graph that we've seen lots of uh, throughout the course. This is genome size, and this is mutation rate. Coronavirus is an outlier because it has a very large genome for RNA viruses, and it also has a really low mutation rate for RNA viruses high for DNA-based viruses and DNA-based organisms, but low for RNA-based viruses. That's, that's sort of just some summary about SARS-CoV-2, and so now I actually want to get into the lecture on evolution of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and so the way that I wanted to structure this is I wanted to talk about past, present, and future coronavirus evolution. So What evolution may have led to SARS-CoV-2's ability to spread in humans and to cause a pandemic? So this is focusing on the past. How is SARS-CoV-2 evolving during the pandemic? That's focusing on now or the present. And what future evolution could be problematic and what future evolution should we prepare for? So the focus a lot of this class was to understand the evolutionary process well enough that we could actually try to make predictions for what may happen. Um, and then we can anticipate those changes and then interfere with them. Okay, so what I'm going to do within each of these sections is toggle between what we've already learned and then updates. Um, this literature on SARS-CoV-2 is growing extremely rapidly. Scientists are working their asses off and uh, getting us new data and getting us new results. And I am trying to keep up with all of it. And I will give you uh, what I think is our newest understanding of what's going on with SARS-CoV-2 evolution. Okay, so before we had talked about the evolution uh, that had led to SARS-CoV-2, here's a sort of simplified phylogeny where we have SARS-CoV-2. Remember, this bat is a strain of coronavirus that was isolated from a bat that shares 96% of its RNA similarity to uh, SARS-CoV-2. And so the most closely related strain that we found of this virus is actually coming from bats. But remember, we also found uh, strains that are relatively similar to SARS-CoV-2 that were in pangolins. And so you can tell if you're thinking about host ranges, how they shift and where they shift in phylogenies, you can know that this ancestor here likely mostly spreads in pangolins. And then there's some transition that happens uh, probably back here that causes a transition to bats and then obviously a transition here to, to humans. This is SARS CoV. Uh, So, this is the early 2000s SARS that that was spreading that did not cause a pandemic. And so, obviously, there is a host shift to humans uh, somewhere around here for, for that virus. So, the host shift happens at these points in time, but it's not necessarily true that all of the mutations responsible for that host shift happen. At this, this point in the phylogeny, it could be that mutations that are happening before this are sort of setting the stage for the genome uh, in order for it to produce the phenotypes and the characteristics of the virus that allow it to transfer into to humans. And so really the question that we're after right now is, what happened back here? And are there any signs that those changes might be responsible for setting the stage for SARS-CoV-2 to spread into human populations? So the the difference between modern SARS and the first SARS is possibly a a century's worth of um, of evolution. There's a lot of similarity between this one and this one, but still they're separated by a lot of evolution, 40 to 70 years possibly. And this is saying here that it it appears that the pangolin and SARS-CoV-2 have uh, similar spike proteins that can bind ACE2, that's the outer membrane protein in humans and in pangolin that coronavirus uses to get into the cell. And it appears that this strain here that's closely related to SARS-CoV-2 might have lost that property to to be able to interact well with human versions of ACE2. And So let's actually get into that, the data that supports that. This was uh, an idea at the time, and now we have a much clearer picture of what's going on there. Okay, so first, this is just some more review. Remember that one of the things that we know happened in the evolution throughout here, and actually it also happened out here, is that there were uh, insertions and deletions that happened in the spike protein. And insertions and deletions are these really rare kinds of mutations, uh, and they have really dramatic effects on the the properties of the protein because you're losing whole segments of amino acids or you're inserting whole segments of amino acids. And so to see lots of insertions and deletions is very weird. And so it raises the question, is this sort of what set the stage um, for its ability to then spread in humans? And so there's now additional support for that idea that these insertions and deletions are responsible for better interactions Uh, between that spike protein S and that ACE2 protein on the outer membrane of the cell. And so what a a newer study than the one that I was presenting a second ago uh, showed is, so what they did differently is that they have more sequences and they have a a better ability to reconstruct the phylogeny of SARS-CoV-2 in relationship to other uh, coronaviruses. And so What they're showing you here is, this is all of the different strains that they're able to uh, sequence and compare to one another. And so they're looking at just a very small segment of the S protein. And so these are amino acids, this is not the RNA. And uh, the way that you read this is the top strain is the first SARS-CoV-2 genome that we sequenced from Wuhan. So the strain is Wuhan human number one. And so the way that you read this is that each time there is a dash, that means that it has, that strain has the exact same amino acid in that position as the Wuhan strain. And so you can see that there's a bunch of strains that are very, very similar or exactly identical to the strain in this region of the spike protein. And, but then you can start to see that there is lots of variation uh, in the amino acid sequence. And what these, seg- these green highlighted segments here are places where there's lots of deletions that have happened. And you can see that there's different, slightly different size deletions. And so this is, this is indicative of multiple evolutionary events leading to deletions. And what the, these authors were able to do is show that there is this sort of subgroup of bat coronaviruses that all have these deletions and have reduced affinity for ACE2, whereas then there's these other two uh, groups of coronaviruses that don't have these deletions, and they have heightened ability for ACE2 binding. And so it's just an association. We need controlled experiments to really prove this, but it is a really strong association connecting these deletions, so these massive changes to the amino acid sequence of the spike protein to its ability to interact with ACE2. Host range expansion is probably dependent on more than just this, but this is one of those stepping stones that gets you there. Okay, I wanted to sort of take a step back and talk to you a little bit about these weird patterns of insertions and deletions in a broader context of the literature. And so one thing people have been pointing out is that, you know, how do they have these insertions and deletions? It's so weird. You know, maybe, maybe this means that people have been tampering with the RNA of these viruses. Maybe people have been tampering with their genomes. How else would you get all of these insertions and deletions? And what I want to say is that this pattern is very natural and it is shockingly similar to patterns that we observed for the virus that we study bacterial phage lambda. So I've hinted at this before when I was lecturing about these insertions and deletions. I didn't show you the data uh, because we hadn't talked about my research yet. We hadn't talked about lambda evolution yet, and how lambda in my lab evolved to use a new receptor, and how we can use this system as a model to understand how this type of evolution happens. And so one of the interesting things that we found in my lab experiments was that there were four mutations. In the host recognition protein, the protein for lambda for host recognition is called J, not S. And so there were four mutations in J that uh, if lambda gets them, it's able to use a brand new receptor. And so we asked the question then okay, this is what happened in the lab, but does does this inform anything about what happens in nature? Would these mutations also arise in nature? Do they arise in nature? And do they cause host range shifts in nature? And so what we did is we looked at genetic variation in the J protein in natural isolates of lambda. And what we found is that those four positions in the protein, they actually have an incredible rate of receiving insertions and deletions. So these are the positions marked on the protein. And so this is is the protein laid out. Uh, this is the reactive part of the re- protein, uh, the receptor binding domain, RBD, that we've referred to for the spike protein. And what's on the y-axis is you can think of this as level of indels. So if you have a low value, you have no indels in that region of the protein. If you have high values, then you have lots and lots of indels. And what we find is that there's a perfect correlation to where these mutations occur that we know change the function of the protein and where we observe insertions and deletions in natural variants of our virus. Uh, so it, it, it suggests that these, these insertions and deletions are evolving in order to change host range um, and that they're evolving often in nature, even though insertions and deletions are so rare to occur. So they must be really rare, but they must be so beneficial because they, they alter the way that the phage is able to interact with its host. And so even though they're rare, there's large enough population sizes of these phage, that these insertions of the lesions uh, reach really high frequencies, probably really rapidly, causing changes in the J, the host recognition protein. So this idea that this pattern is unnatural is wrong. It's actually very natural, and we see it in a very different virus, and nobody is trying to mess with lambda phage in order to make a bioweapon or anything like that. Lambdaphage lambda phage infects E. coli, it's harmless, and yeah, there's no way that it's turning into a bioweapon. Okay, so the next thing that we had talked about is um, we, we see these insertions and deletions in the spike protein, but there's also this interesting pattern where a segment of the spike protein looks more like the pangolin copy of the gene, rather than the bat copy of the gene uh, RATG13, this is the one that shares 96% similarity to SARS-CoV-2, and it is, most segments of this genome are extremely similar to SARS-CoV-2, except there is this one segment that we had found before that looked much more similar to pangolin than to bats. And so if you remember, I had shown you these two phylogenies before, so this is the phylogeny based on the whole genome, and you see that humans are closest to the bat strain, and then their close relative is the pangolin strain. But when you just look at the small segment of S, then you see that humans cluster with pangolins, and now in that segment, the bats are the most distinct. And so the way that you explain that happening is that yes, these two strains share a very recent common ancestor, and they share a more distant common ancestor with the pangolin strain, however, there was a recombination event that happened where a piece of each, this guy's genome got transferred to sars-cov-2 and so that's what is being represented here and so now when you when you build a phylogeny based on all the information in the genome most of it gives you this relationship here but this section is off it causes problems for producing the phylogeny and you know the weight of evidence gives you this overall structure but if you were just to make the phylogeny based on this small segment of RNA, then you would actually get this clustering with pangolin and not with uh, RATG13. So recombination is a really weird thing as well. So we see indels, that's weird, recombination is weird. And so now we have multiple rare events aligning. And so that really, you know, that gets the conspiracy theorists going, oh, there's all these genetic changes, they're so strange. This must be the hand of humans uh, screwing around with coronaviruses trying to make a pandemic. However, what we find is that recombination in coronaviruses is widespread. It happens all the time. It's not a rare thing. And so this is a very normal way for coronaviruses to be evolving. Okay, so this is another paper, and this is another figure. And what I'm showing you guys here are phylogenies, that are all created from the same strains of coronavirus sequences. You can see that the phylogenies have really different structures. And what we're doing here is we are cutting up the genome into smaller segments, and then we're building phylogenies from those smaller segments to see if they all agree with each other or if they're distinct. Um, And so what we have here is just region, 2088 to 2430, region two is, you know, you can read. So these are different regions of the genomes and we're just constructing phylogenies from this subset of information, not the full genome, just the subset. And what we find is that these OTUs completely get reshuffled and rearranged um, depending on what portion of the genome that we, we use. What that tells us is that different genes in the genome have different evolutionary histories. The only way that that can happen is if they were evolving independently in different genomes, and then they recombine later into a single genome. And so, yes, they're, they're all in one continuous strand of RNA, but the history of all those segments are distinct, and that is revealed from these distinct phylogenies. And so we know from these analyses that coronaviruses do uh, recombine a lot. What this means is that they have an efficient molecular mechanism for recombination, and that they can co-infect the same host, so probably bats are in this kind of reservoir, this sort of soup of different coronaviruses, and you know occasionally they, they'll infect the exact, different strains will infect the exact same uh, cells, and then they'll recombine their RNA with each other. Um, and so this, this must be happening a lot in order to, to see this level of recombination and different patterns in the, in the phylogeny. So just to sort of go back to the Lambda study, um, you know, this is the one that always tells me that, okay, well, we see it too in our lab, in our analyses. And so therefore it must be just a common feature of viral evolution and certainly natural. And so when we did that study that we just talked about, where we discovered that insertions and deletions, we also found we had lots of problems with constructing the phylogeny. And so we were trying to make a phylogeny of the entire post-recognition protein. And what we realized is that actually the beginning of the protein had a different evolutionary history than the end of the protein. And so it was interfering with our ability to reconstruct the phylogeny because basically it was like half the information was telling us one thing and half the information was telling us something else. And so there was a real conflict. It was hard to resolve the actual structure of the phylogeny. So what we did is we figured out where that recombination tended to happen in the protein. And then we segmented one side of the protein and the other side of the protein and constructed the phylogenies. And this is showing you how different segmentations of the protein yield uh, different evolutionary relationships. So you can do this phylogenetic based analysis, but that's very cumbersome and very laborious. There are other ways to analyze genomic DNA in order to be able to detect recombination. Uh, And so this is a a little bit complicated. Um, So, Actually, I would like to go to the board and sort of walk you through what's going on here. Uh, This is the first time I've ever tried to explain this kind of analysis, so so bear with me. Um, And so on the, let's start with the x-axis. That's um, position in the genome. And the y-axis is genetic similarity. Okay, and so what, what is this? This is similarity to a given genome. The, the genome that I think is the reference is going to be SARS-CoV-2 um, human number one from Wuhan. And so um, you're going to have different lines, and that's going to be for different genomes being compared to that, that original SARS-CoV-2 genome. And, um, and so let's say that the, the bat one, you know, it's not, so this is a hundred percent. So if you just had, you know, the same genome compared to the same genome, you would get a solid line across the top here. Um, obviously that's, that's redundant information. You don't need to include that in your analysis. Um, but uh, so say, say for instance, we would plot um, the the bat coronavirus genome on here it would be on average about 96% similar across the whole genome. If nothing funny was going on that's the pattern that you would see. And then you would see something like the pangolin genome would be lower and then uh, say another pangolin SARS coronavirus genome was even lower. And so this would be the pattern if, you know, all the parts of the genome were behaving similarly, um, where they're just accumulating genetic differences, and so this one is very closely related to the the SARS-CoV-2 strain, this one's less related, and this one's less related. So they're just more evolutionary time between them. Um, But, you know, obviously, that this is sort of theoretical and this is the ideal circumstance, but uh, nature is really messy and other things can happen. And so the first thing that you can be on the lookout for is that, you know, for random reasons or maybe because of natural selection, um, uh, promoting evolution in some regions of the genome and stifling evolution in other regions of the genome, you won't get the sort of flat line across the whole top there, what you'll get It's something more like this. You know, where, where it fluctuates up and down, there's, there's noise, there's um, different rates of evolution for different genes based on natural selection, or maybe there's even local regions that have a slightly higher mutation rate, things like that. Um, but normally, this pattern, you know, they'll, they'll kind of fluctuate with each other up and down. You'll see the same pattern for, for the different genomes. Um, So that's, that's, you know, that's already getting a little bit more complicated. But then from there, it gets even weirder. And this is the way that you can observe um, a recombination from this kind of data. And so if you see that for some reason, this region here drops down really far down, and then back up, and then another one, Another one sort of shoots up. Um, What that means is that this segment of DNA in the original um, SARS-CoV-2 strain uh, is, in this segment, not very similar to the bat, but very similar to the pangolin. And so it drops down, and the pangolin drops up for that region of the genome. That crossing really shows you that those genomes are recombining with each other, um, and then it sort of goes back to normal. And so that's that's one si- sign of recombination, and that can help you sort of find where recombination is happening in the genome. And it can even, if you get this really perfect pattern here, where one strain drops down in similarity and one strain increases in similarity, that tells you, oh, you know, I that it recombined, um, you know, with with a, a relative of this um, of this uh, penguin strain that I that I, I have the sequence for. Um, another pattern that you'll see in the data is this. basically everything, everything drops down together and you don't see the sort of reciprocal increase of similarity of, of, of one of the other strains. And so what this tells you is that that, um, that orig- I keep referring to it, so I'm just going to draw, that, that initial SARS That initial SARS-CoV-2, um, it has a recombination in this portion of its genome that makes it very distinct from all of the strains that we're analyzing and all the strains that we have sequenced. And we, what it means is that we just don't know what it recombined with. We haven't uh, actually sampled that genome uh, from nature yet. And so uh, these all drop down in similarity, and they're kind of, they're coordinated, um, and that suggests that you know, this is really distinct at this point, at this point, and so it must have recombined with something that we just haven't found yet. So now let's get to the actual data. Now I, I hope that the plot makes much more sense. Yeah. So um, you can look over this data and, and see sort of where there's kind of funny business going on, and that helps you identify uh, where you see recombinations. And so obviously this is not as clean as the even crappy drawing that I have on the board. It's even messier. Um, But the authors have identified one, uh, two, three, and four regions where they think that recombination has happened that led to the evolution of the modern SARS-CoV-2 strain. And so number one is pointing out that, you know, pink's usually above uh, purple, but it jumps up here. And Three, I'm not. Oh, three is pointing out how all of these sort of increase in similarity, and so it seems that maybe they have some kind of recombination that happened a long time ago, or that includes this guy and, and these all together. You can see this four example and, and two example are these cases where everything kind of just drops in similarity, suggesting that SARS-CoV two has recombined with something that we haven't sequenced that we don't have information for on this on this plot. So yeah, so that's sort of the the genome-wide evidence that this recombination that we see in the pangolin for just a few amino acids, that, it it seems evident that that happened for the S protein in a small segment of the genome. But when we sort of look at larger regions of the genome, uh, we can see that there's actually other signs of recombination as well. And so recombination is rampant in the evolution of uh, coronaviruses. Okay. So let's talk about what natural selection is doing during the evolution of the coronaviruses before they emerge into the human population. What I can tell you is that these viruses experience strong, purifying, or negative natural selection. And so what this means is that these viruses are optimized for their host that they're infecting already. They're optimized to function well in the host. And so when mutations arise that cause non-synonymous changes, Uh, Those mutations are removed from the population, and so you get a lot of synonymous mutations uh, occurring and reaching high frequencies and causing substitutions, uh, but those non-synonymous changes are are much rarer. They certainly occur, the mutations arise, uh, but they don't reach high frequency and they don't substitute the nucleotide there. Um, and so, okay, let's actually get into the data that shows us. And so what, what we're doing here is we're looking at different parts of the genome. We have to separate them up because we know that they have different evolutionary histories. Um, and so we're looking at different parts of the genome. That's what E and these are different genes. As you know that gene, these are the first two big genes in the genome that we've talked about already. And so they're constructing trees based on nucleic acid information, based on amino acid information. Um, you can see that they should be mostly similar to each other. Let's not worry about those differences, if there are any. But then they do a dNDS ratio analysis, and this is just on the x-axis. This is just codon number, and so this is not position, but this is just the number of codons in their analysis. And what you can see, and I'm sorry that this is so small, this lighter, lighter color is for synonymous changes. The, the red color is for accumulation of non-synonymous changes, and the black are indels. And what we see, by far, is that in all of these different segments of the genome, as we look at more and more codons, then we get a steady increase of the number of synonymous substitutions that we observe. But we don't get much of an increase in the number of uh, non-synonymous changes or certainly of, of the indels, either. What this tells you is that when a mutation occurs that changes the protein, it's likely deleterious and it's removed from the population rather than promoted. If they were experiencing really strong positive selection, you would see um, the red line you know, doing some kind of trajectory like that, having an even faster rate of evolution than the synonymous substitution line. So what this means is that you know, there's not much happening in terms of adaptive evolution for the coronavirus in the bat and the pangolins. Uh, they're already pretty good at it. So they're experiencing purifying selection. So, that is sort of what we know about the evolution, or what I know about the evolution of coronaviruses before we get to SARS CoV 2. There's lots of these evolutionary rare events and in del- indels in recombination uh, that drove the evolution of lineage that would eventually yield SARS CoV 2. Uh, while recombination indels may be atypical, similar patterns have been observed for other viruses. There's no evidence for unnatural emergence, and you can talk to your conspiracy theory friends about this and talk about how. Very similar patterns of recombination and uh, insertions and in deletions and other mutations are analogous to viruses that are very different, but you know obviously are experiencing same pressures to expand their host ranges and adapt in that way. Okay, and then the last is that uh, you know we really do before we get into the weeds on what a certain indel does and what a certain recombination does, we need to do the controlled experiments where we introduce one mutation at a time into the virus and see how it affects the phenotype, that's the way that you can attribute a phenotypic change or or an adaptation to a particular mutation. So we haven't done that, that takes a long time. Bioinformatic analyses are difficult, but actually they're much faster than lab work because we can sequence the genomes quickly and then we can just set up the computer and analyze them. Actually doing lab work takes months and months and months to figure out um, how the system works. Okay, so now let's get into present evolution of SARS-CoV-2. So I want to walk you through this example that was provided by the New York Times that is very similar to the way that we walk through mutations in hospitals and the spread of uh, antibiotic-resistant strains of Klebsiella. This is analogous, but with SARS-CoV-2, and not walking through different rooms in a hospital or different wards of a hospital, but walking through the world and how this how this, this virus spread uh, around the world in just a matter of a couple months. So this is um, obviously a map of the world with Wuhan pointed out. This strain was collected on December 26th. Um, we know that this, this disease emerged sometime in early December, late November, around that time. And so... This is one of the earliest strains that they're able to isolate, and they actually sequence the whole genome. So this is our reference strain. This is Wuhan, human one, that we've been talking about. And so now we think that this is an ancestral strain that then gave rise to all of the uh, strains that are spreading around the world right now. So this is your common ancestor of all of those strains. And so far, that, the evidence for that is good. And so we can see that within Wuhan we have a strain isolated from January eighth. Within Wuhan we do we see that there was uh, one mutation that arose in another strain, but not not too many mutations. Remember, this is a slow slow rate of evolution and a slow mutation rate uh, compared to other viruses. And then we see another strain popping up uh, in a nearby uh, nearby city, and that strain actually has two new mutations. And what this is pointing out is that this strain here was a silent mutation or a synonymous mutation, whereas these mutations here are actually changing the amino acid. These are non-synonymous changes that are happening in the genome. I'm not sure if they have any, any phenotypic effects, but we know that they do change the amino acid. Okay, so that allows us to say, okay, it started in Wuhan, and now there are strains that spread to Guangzhou. Sorry for the pronunciation. Then we find that there are strains that popped up in the United States. There are strains that popped up in Europe and other places as well. We're focusing on the United States just for now. And so when you look at these strains, you can see that they have a number of additional mutations. So this strain here that wound up in Seattle has three mutations. There's actually identical strains uh, to the Seattle strain that were still remaining in China and they were in these uh, other two cities, and so it suggests that pr- this was probably a, a, the strange jumping-off point, and then it spread to these cities, but also spread to uh, to Seattle. That it started in one spot and then radiated out to all of these different regions. What's interesting is that then we started getting strains in California, and and so you would think just by looking at the globe and how close Seattle is to California versus Wuhan that. It first arose in Seattle, and then it came down to California, but that's actually not the pathway that it took. These are two independent strains that came out of Wuhan. The strain that found its way into California at first only has a single mutation. So remember, Seattle has three mutations. This has a unique mutation, and it's a single mutation. And so it must have evolved here and then transferred over to here, or maybe in, the, in roots or whatever, it got this mutation, and what the, the genome that was spreading was the original genome. Uh, in Wuhan. But anyways, what it means is that there, there are multiple separate migration events that, that spread this virus into the United States. And this was just two at the very beginning. actually, there's been many different events where different strains have traveled to the United States. So you can also look at these mutations and you can reconstruct that some strains move from Wuhan uh, to Shanghai and then Shanghai to Munich. And they also did this analysis. Where they're looking at strains within this is New York City, so you can see the, the different boroughs. Do they have? Uh, I don't see Staten Island. Maybe I actually don't know where Staten Island is, so it might be on here. Um, but yeah, these are these are the boroughs of New York, and you can see that the strains early in the New York outbreak they were mostly from Europe, but they also came from some were from the west coast of the United States, so Washington. And then some were actually from Asia as well. Uh, I don't see exactly where there's, oh, this one up here. Um, So there were some strains from Asia, but most of the strains came to New York actually by way of Europe, not even by way of of the United States. Um, So, you know, using these genomes, we can reconstruct the path. And the path is often very convoluted and would be impossible to know if we didn't have this ability to reconstruct using this genomic information. And it's identical to what we learned about for hospital spread. Same exact logic. So here is just a a series of four panels that the National Geographic published. I kind of wish I had it before when I was teaching about how you use genome sequences to reconstruct geographic spread of pathogens. Here it is. Uh, You can use it for for studying for your final and so what, what the figure is showing us is just the steps that you take to turn genetic sequences of viruses into a map of how it spread from one patient to another patient, and importantly, how it spread from one location to another location. And so you have, you've isolated all of these different viruses, A through D. You have their genome sequences. They're mostly, mostly identical, except they have these uh, couple unique mutations. That's what these diamonds are. And so you can reconstruct a phylogeny that gives you the evolutionary relationships of all of these strains. And then what you can do is you know where you isolated the strains from. And so you can superimpose on top of this phylogeny where uh, a location for the strains, and you can also bend the phylogeny in a way so that uh, you are now representing time, not in terms of evolutionary distance, but in terms of actual calendar time on the x-axis or the branch length is now not about genetic distance, but it's about when that strain was isolated in in sequenced. And so that's what this graph is showing you here is that you can have time on the x-axis of when you sampled the the virus, and then you can now with colors, we're we're saying where the strains were, were isolated from, so time and space is represented here, and what we can see is that it's clear that this virus, at some time point between here and here, shifted locations, and now it's in location number two, and now it's spreading in location number two. So you can also superimpose information about the specific patients that you isolate these strains from, and so then you can reconstruct a patient map, um, just like uh, what we did for that, the spread of antibiotic-resistant strains within hospitals. So this is just a summary of how you do that and how you think about it. It's a nice visual summary. I, so I hope it helps you guys be able to better picture what we're doing when we're reconstructing that map of spread in the hospitals. Okay, so that's sort of looking at it mutation by mutation, location by location, uh, strain by strain, but now you can automate those processes, those analyses. People have done that and they have published the phylogeny of all of the genomes of SARS-CoV-2 that we've observed and how they spread around the world. And so they're using that same logic now to make this sort of complex network of viral spread uh, around the globe. Um, And so this is amazing that we're able to do that, that we have this much information and that we have the computer power to construct these phylogenies, do the analysis and produce a plot, and this is updated almost daily, I think, if not not more, Uh, so it's incredible. You can watch how it's spreading around the world. You can see through the course that this map has become uh, richer and richer with connections between different regions, and now we even see that there's lots and lots of strains uh, in the southern hemisphere which there weren't as many before. Okay, so this is a review of what we talked about before. We asked the question at the time, Uh, Is SARS-CoV-2 evolving? And of course it's evolving. This is the next strain data that we looked at before. Um, And we looked at this molecular clock. Um, So we have, you guys are very familiar with molecular clocks now, where you have date on the x-axis, on the y-axis, you have number of mutations, and so there's a relationship that as the strain continues to evolve, and the newer and newer strains have more and more unique mutations. And so there's a relationship, that relationship is your molecular clock. And this molecular clock is pretty slow for RNA viruses. This is good news for us because if we develop therapies, it's going to take them a long time to evolve resistance, hopefully, fingers crossed. So one question that we didn't address before, and I have had questions from the class, is: uh, has SARS-CoV-2 evolved into unique strains? This is the same phylogeny as you saw before, but Now we are color coding it for different clades, not strains, different clades of SARS-CoV-2. So clade is a monophyletic group. And so what we do see is that there are these unique clades that are emerging as the virus continues to evolve and spread around the world. And so these are thought that they could be the precursors to strains that would eventually emerge, or maybe they're actually even considered they could be strains right now, But we don't have information yet on the phenotype of all of these different clades. And so we're unable to say whether or not they're actually distinct strains. So the answer to this question is no. These are distinct clades. They're not strains. In order to establish that they're different strains, we'd have to sample a bunch of these and show that they have a characteristic about their phenotype, the way that they spread or the viral load that they produce or something like that, that is distinct from the strains here, and the strains here, and the strains here. So until we have that information, we can't declare that these are unique strains. They might be on that path, uh, but they don't seem to be there yet, or maybe we just don't have the information yet to declare them distinct strains. Okay, we also talked about, you know, is SARS-CoV-2 actually adapting uh, to us? We know that it wasn't spreading in humans before, and humans are certainly distinct from bats and pangolins, and so are there differences in our physiology and our cells that are now selecting for changes in SARS-CoV-2? We had talked about how there looked to be high DNDS ratios within the S gene. Remember that this is a preprint that hasn't gone through a review, and these seem extraordinarily high, so I'm a little bit skeptical of them, but it would make sense that S would be uh, experiencing selection because S interacts with ACE2 and ACE2 in humans is distinct from ACE2 in bats and is distinct from ACE2 in, in pangolins. This is just some bioinformatic analysis to suggest that the mutations that we've observed in S, the non-synonymous mutations, may in fact correspond with a tighter binding to uh, the human ACE2 versus the other homologs for ACE2 and, and other organisms. So you can go back to, to look at those details. Remember, this is suggestive, it's not the actual experiment that we need to perform. So, I want to scour the literature since I gave that lecture um, to see if other people have been observing elevated DNDS ratios, maybe across the whole genome of SARS CoV 2, or certainly I want to double check that it's happening in the S uh, protein. Uh, and I'm actually surprised that I didn't find more examples of this DNDS analysis. I'm not sure why that is, but I did find a couple papers and this is an interesting paper, although it's also very, it's a small sample size and it's, it's another preprint. So, you know, I, I'm not going to say that we definitively know that there's positive selection acting on S, but what you're looking at here is on the Y axis, we have scaled the MDS ratio. Okay. So they've changed the way that they publish the data so that zero is what I taught you a one was before. So anything above zero is positive selection. Anything below zero is negative selection. It is actually more intuitive. It is an extra step in the calculation. It's a step that we haven't taken before in this class when I taught you how to calculate DMDS ratios. So what we would say is neutral evolution or one is there zero. And so what, what you're also looking at is we have two different regions of the genome. This is the early region of the genome, and then uh, this is ORF1AB summed together, and then the next gene over is S, and that's the one that other people have detected positive selection. We're looking at strains of MERS, strains of SARS, and strains of SARS-CoV-2. So these are all coronaviruses that cause bad infections in humans, and we're spreading. SARS-CoV-2 has spread much further, and what we find is that there's purifying selection on all of the genomes in this early region of the genome, ORF1A and B, and then for MERS and for SARS-CoV, there's purifying selection on the S-spike protein, but for the one that has spread around the globe, there's actually positive selection acting on that one. But I do have to say, so this is consistent with that other study, but there is a caveat that I'm, I'm just nervous about these numbers, that other studies were so high. This is low um, compared to the other study. It's on just a handful of sequences. And so, and they're also from preprints, not papers that have been actually published and peer reviewed yet. So this has that caveat. But I'll bring this up later. When the, the epidemic was happening with Ebola in 2014 and 15, we did a similar analysis and found that in fact, the host recognition protein was under positive selection and was changing and was changing in ways to better interact with human cells than bat cells. So Ebola also typically comes from bats, just like this, uh, this coronavirus. So it seems, you know, it seems consistent at least. So in the previous study, it it showed that there was probably purifying selection in most of so um, we showed there's purifying selection in the in the history of coronavirus evolution across the genome. This was from the Earlier in the lecture, just now we showed that when you're looking at these more recent coronaviruses that spread in humans, there tends to be a lot of purifying selection, except except for SARS-CoV-2 and the spike protein. And so here is another analysis that was performed. and I had never seen anything like this before, so I thought it was interesting, where they were looking at synonymous changes that happened in SARS-CoV-2 and non-synonymous changes that happened in SARS-CoV-2, and they, they created a histogram where they, on the x-axis, we have um, the frequency of the mutation uh, in their sample. So they have a sample of 103 uh, different genomes, and they're looking at how frequent a mutation is in that sample and whether or not that mutation is a synonymous mutation or a non-synonymous mutation. And so the synonymous mutations give us the pattern of what we expect from just complete neutral evolution, and so we see sort of a widespread of mutations at different frequencies. And whereas in the non-synonymous, uh, we actually see this huge influx of really rare mutations and very few mutations that are very common. And so what this suggests is purifying selection. That basically what's happening is that when non-synonymous changes pop up, you know they occur, but they don't rise in frequency. They get, just get pushed back out of the population because they're most likely deleterious. And so this is a really interesting pattern that suggests that, you know, most of the genome is under purifying selection. So the, the thing for the course for you to understand is that the synonymous pattern sort of sets the standard of not, no selection happening. And so since there's a shift to an influx of non-synonymous mutations that are low in frequency, that's consistent with selection suppressing those mutations and making them very rare. If you had another shift where you had Lots of um, non-synonymous changes, then you would actually see an influx of very common, very frequent uh, mutations. This is also from a preprint, so you know there's that caveat, but it's a pretty interesting analysis and it's a genome-wide level way of pretty intuitive way of, of demonstrating how selection is working. Okay, so summary of evolution during the pandemic, so evolution, the present evolution of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, most of the genome is experiencing purifying selection, uh, partially explaining the slow rate of evolution. So we keep talking about the slow rate, and we're attributing it to the slower mutation rate of SARS-CoV-2. But it's also, we have a slow mutation rate, and we have purifying selection that's slowing, putting the brake pedal on how fast this virus is evolving. But there, there may be sections of the genome that are experiencing positive sl- selection, particularly this SS S, uh, gene that we talk a lot about. And this note here is just about uh, the comparison of an S in SARS-CoV-2 to the Ebola virus and how it was evolving during a pandemic in 2014-15. Okay, so now this will be pretty short. This is anticipating future SARS-CoV-2 evolution. I wish this was longer. I wish our science was better and that we could be more predictive. But, you know, we're, we're getting there. Um, lots of work to do for, for people like myself Okay. So before, this is just a review, people were studying other coronaviruses and they were studying a compound that's very similar to remdesivir and acts on the polymerase of the, these other coronaviruses. Um, and they found that when they were culturing the viruses in the lab and exposure to this remdesivir-like chemical, that there were two amino acid substitutions that evolved and these amino acid substitutions made the virus less sensitive to um, this is the remdesivir-like chemical here. And so this is just a, this is showing you percent inhibition on the y-axis. We've looked at lots of these curves and concentration of uh, the drug. And we see that the 50% inhibition point for wild type is about a little bit lower than 001 uh, whereas for the evolved one, the 50% is up here, almost an order of magnitude higher. Uh, and So these mutations are very effective at conferring resistance to this coronavirus. And there are reasons, looking at the sequence, that these would also work in the SARS-CoV-2 as well. And we now know that remdesivir is effective at SARS-CoV-2, and so we might be using remdesivir and causing selection for these types of amino acid changes And the evolution of resistance. So that's something that we we can anticipate, given what we know about other coronaviruses and the conservation of the sequences between those other coronaviruses and the one that is infecting humans. And given these lab experiments, we would make the prediction that we have to look out for resistance evolution and we might actually know the specific amino acids that could confer resistance to remdesivir, the drug. So another thing that I was thinking about and anticipating is that we know that coronaviruses have a low mutation rate. And we know that part of the reason why they have a low mutation rate is they have this proofreader protein. And we know that, you know, there's lots of mutations in every protein that can break its function or make it function worse. And so you can imagine a scenario where mutations might arise in this protein and might have this effect where, yeah, the protein's not working as well. But what that does is it elevates the mutation rate of SARS-CoV-2. And then that may enhance its ability to adapt. And so that actually, even though it has these deleterious effects on replicating the RNA genome, it might actually have this sort of second-order effect of enhancing its ability to evolve. And so it might actually be selected for. And that would be a huge problem for us because then it would have enhanced ability to avoid our therapies. And then doing a Google search with this idea... Uh, It turns out that I was not the first person to think about this and that there was a group that found a mutation in this protein. And then they did this analysis where they looked at genomes that had the mutation. So that's red and genomes that did not have the mutation. And they found that actually the distribution of the number of mutations in genomes that have the mutation is higher than the ones that don't have the mutation, suggesting that these genomes are experiencing more mutations. This is just suggestive. I would like them to do a much more thorough analysis where we know sort of how old these genomes are and we make sure that these are not older genomes than these genomes and the pattern is just caused by age. And there's some other analyses that we could do to better verify this, but it's a really interesting pattern and it suggests that hypothesis I had that if you get a mutation in this proofreading protein, you might actually enhance the mutation rate of this virus in the context where it's adapting to a brand new host might be a good thing for it because now it's hit the gas pedal on uh, mutations and it can find those few lucky mutations that are actually adaptive. Most non-synonymous changes we think in this virus are deleterious, but there's likely a few here and there that that would improve its ability to interact with humans and the one with a higher mutation rate is more likely to uncover them. Uh, So this is a problem because if this is true, the mutation rate into the future is gonna be higher for the virus and it's gonna be harder for us to develop therapies for. Okay, so some summary of anticipating future SARS-CoV-2 evolution. Therapy-resistant mutations are anticipated. Um, smart drug use practices are required to mitigate the spread of resistance mutations. And SARS-CoV-2 could evolve a higher mutation rate, becoming a more difficult pathogen to develop there.